Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, January 4th, 2024. You know, I don't know if it's just getting older or what, but I remember when, like, especially back when you used to write checks instead of do everything online, and the date would change, and it was very hard for me to adjust every year. Like, you know, it would be 1993, and then it had to be 94, and then it had to be 95, and stuff like that. And I, I kind of struggled with it. And now it's just not a big deal anymore. I don't know what that is. Like, as you get older, you just kind of like you're already living in the future because you know you're getting closer to the end of it, right? I don't know, man, but I just I haven't had that issue for the last couple of years. Like the new year, like using the wrong date or whatever has not been a thing. Uh, maybe it's just because we don't write paper checks anymore and I don't notice it, but uh, it's not even weird when saying it. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what today's show about. It is a Thursday. That means it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show for the week. Episode 3,424. Here's what we got for you today. First up, we'll be hearing from Ron Paul and his team over at the Liberty Report. The military-industrial complex is bleeding us dry from Dan McAdams. Tell me what's new, Dan. And then... Free your mind from the empire of lies. Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini team up on that one. Then Tim Toolman Cook will talk about gearing up for off-road hunting. But I would honestly say this is a good segment for off-road anything in general. Off-road camping, off-road screwing off, whatever. Having the right gear with you when you're going off-road. Nicole Awesome Sauce will talk about thoughts on canning with vinegar. But in a weird way. Yeah, I will just leave it at that, and you can hear from Nicole when she gets to her segment. Old Doc Bones will not be talking about curing illnesses so much today. He will talk about bartering during a collapse and why things like food and medical supplies may be better barter items in a real collapse than gold and silver. I happen to agree. Though I will have some things to add. Nicholas Ferguson will talk about planting small, young seedling trees for the best chance of their survival. John Pagliano will talk to us about the pros and cons of being a W-2 employee versus a 1099 contractor. Additionally, he'll be giving us his look at the market going into 2024. And I'm going to answer your question that was originally sent in for Ken Berry. I actually think there's one of the few times when somebody asks a diet question, I'm probably better to answer it than Ken. Because it's not really directly related to the diet. It's like one-off. I have often said, so as Ken, so have many people in the keto carnivore world, you know, plants are poisonous. Plants don't want to be eaten. Like fruits are, you know, there's too much sugar in some fruits and too much fruit would be bad. But overall, like you can eat fruits without direct toxic effects. But when you eat any vegetable, as we think of it, the plant does not gain from being eaten, or any grain or seed. The plant does not gain by being eaten. It does not aid it in reproduction. If To make it simple, if you eat a cherry tomato, and you go out and pop a squat somewhere in the woods, you just planted cherry tomatoes. Okay, You see how that works? Seeds pass through, etc. It's the way the plant has evolved to reproduce. But if I take wheat or rye or a potato out of the ground or lettuce or anything like that and I eat it, all I've done is shorten the plant's life and removed its ability to reproduce. So plants don't want us to eat them, so they have developed chemical defenses against us. And that's something we need to be cognizantly aware of even if we eat plants. Right? 
very diet, yada, yada. Well, this person asked me a question, and they're going all in on carnivores, so they're not really being a troll. But they asked a troll-like question, which is, well, why do animals want us to eat them? Well, of course, the answer is they don't, but this is what we would call, dun-dun-dun, a false equivalency fallacy. We will talk about that. We will use it both to explain the issue and the fallacy of false equivalency, because, boy, there's a lot of that shit going around, such as, I trust vaccines. Well, which one? Is though a tetanus vaccine, a polio vaccine, a live virus polio vaccine, a dead polio virus vaccine, and an mRNA untested vaccine are all equivalent. They are not. False equivalency. Doesn't even mean that maybe the latest jab-stab would not be safe. I don't believe it is, but it doesn't mean that in of itself. But the lumping together of things as though they are equivalent when they're not, that is a classic fallacy. It has no place in making intellectual decisions or having intellectual discussions, which is why it is used so heavily. Now, I don't think this person intended that. I think they just simply said, hey, if I go out and say this on social media, then this is what the vegans are going to say back to me. You're probably right, and so we shall destroy the false equivalency fallacy for what it is today. With that, before we do, let's go ahead and remind you guys that if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the things you can do to really help me out is become a member of the MSB. Hey, everybody's talking about New Year's resolutions. I'm not really a fan of the term, but how about this for a resolution? You know, how about supporting the show that brings you content five days a week that you won't get anywhere else? Extremely varied content. You know, we, we talk about five different things at least every week on every different show. We bring you all the things necessary to be more prepared, more resilient, and better design your life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, you can support us at what works out to 18 cents an episode by joining the MSB. Get all the discounts we give you, and get your money back. Because just a few of the discounts, if you use them every year, will more than cover the cost of your membership. That is a win-win-win, if I ever said so. Win-win-win? What's up with the win-win-win? I win you win, Jack. Who's the third win? Well, the vendors that support the show as MSB vendors. They win because they get something called incremental revenue. By giving you a discount, they get business they would not otherwise have. Anyway, you can learn more by going to the survival pod, the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members or just click on the members tab on the website. With that, let's hear from Ron Paul uh, and Chris Rossini and Dan McAdams in the exact opposite of that order. We always strive to be right, and when if I'm ever wrong, I feel really terrible. This is one day I think that we're happy to be wrong if we're going to yeah. be wrong. We're happy to see that return to normalcy, but the one thing that I have, I have just a couple that I think won't have, and there's a lot, but one of the short list is that we won't, unfortunately, right-size and right-purpose the U.S. military. Um, we know, we, we talked about it on the show, we've passed a massive, massive spending bill, there's all kinds of money in it for things that are completely unrelated to the defense of this nation. Um, and it continues to grow. And this is an example. And I think hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about this this week. Uh, Colonel McGregor sent me this article over this morning. And it is an important article. And I haven't completely digested it. But it's just a symbol of, of what is not going to happen. <coughs> now, put this up if you can, this first one. This is from the New York Times. New spin on a revolving door. Pentagon officials 
turned venture capitalist. And you see here, here is Espy, who was the SecDef under Trump. And I just have one clip from it, and this tells you what I'm talking about on this one, Dr. Paul. If you can go to that next clip. Um, he, he says, uh, retiring generals and departing top Pentagon officials once migrated regularly to the big established weapons makers like Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Now, they are increasingly flocking to venture capital firms that have collectively pumped billions of dollars into Silicon Valley-style startups, offering the Pentagon new warfighting tools like autonomous killer drones, hypersonic jets, and space surveillance equipment. So to me, what this looks like, Dr. Paul, is that they are becoming a moving target and hard to you know, put your finger on. They're burying themselves in these little startups everywhere, and they're going to start sucking more money in. So when we keep talking about Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and how evil they are, they're going to be beside the point because it's going to be hard to point your finger at these hundreds or maybe even thousands of startups. So it is like a cancer that's metastasizing and spreading throughout the body. So I think with that, it's probably not a good sign. Right. Government is about, uh, at least in our current form, creating division and then profiting off of it. You know, when I go outside of my house for a run, a walk, I pass all different races, men, women, religions, the Republicans, Democrats. There's no inherent conflict when I leave my house. Now, maybe in the cities, there's a lot more crime going on. But it's not inherent in, in who we are. Same thing when I go to the store. I don't care if someone has a different religion when they're ringing me up or what they believe about anything, actually. I just want my product for a good price. But the problems begin when government enters into our lives and tilts the tables towards one versus another. You know, they'll, they'll create legislation that favors one over another. They're creating conflict. And when they do this, it's good for them. Because now you create lobbyists, too. Now you have two sides that are going to uh, fawn over you to please uh, tilt the tables my way. And when you get these two teams fighting for your, you know, your graces, they will use money. They'll make you rich. And that's why politicians, they go and they come out hundreds of millions of dollars richer as public servants in Washington, D.C. They're doing it because they're capitalizing on conflict. They tilt the tables one way or another. And, you know, they end up rich and more powerful. They create more regulations. They created a problem. Now they create more regulations and create two new problems. And it just piles up. And while everybody is arguing with one another over bathrooms, over a man is a man, a woman and this and that, they are picking everybody's pockets clean. They a hundred billion dollars was picked out of our pockets and sent to a failed war. Another one, you know, over Ukraine. And, you know, so both Republicans, and Democrats, as they're fighting with one another, the people that are picking their pockets, they can't. Nobody is united against them. You know, so th this is how division works. This goes back all the way to the Roman Empire. You divide the people that you rule over, have them fight with one another, and then you gain all the power and wealth. It's the same story. And that's what we're living through today. Very, very good, Chris. Uh, you know, this, this lying business in one place it, that annoys me because of the personal personal responsibilities I had as a physician and as a gynecologist. There's no difference between the sexes of this. If you don't want to be such and such, you can just change your sex and your gender. Well, gender, gender, uh, you know, the explanation of gender been around 
you know, for a few years. I think I think Adam and Eve talked a little bit about the difference between a man and a woman. But what do they do now? If you're if you're a kid in grade school and you get asked a question, how many genders are they? Well, there are two and uh, get kicked out of school or call the parents. They've committed a crime. I mean, that is just so bad. But it's all based on a lie. That's how far lying has gone to the point. It's not a disagreement in uh, in science. Well, where where else did the lying in medicine occur? And that was the, with with COVID. They lied about that. And it turns out that the treatment and the advice of the government was terrible. Paul, yes. And you mentioned Adam and Eve. <laughs> and, you know, if, anyway, just if you just get the lessons out of it, whether you believe in it or not, you know, there's harmony. And what ruins the harmony? Lies and deception and the desire to be God, the desire not to be a human, not, not to be who you are, but to be who you are not. You know, and that's isn't that is that not what we deal with today on a grand scale? It's the same story throughout all of human history. So here, let, let's just take a little look at both of these segments, and I'll tell you where I think that maybe uh, I'd say it. Dan's missing the boat a little bit. So Dan said, like, this whole, you know, Lockheed, Raytheon, et cetera, like, you're not going to be able to point your finger at them because they're pumping all this money into these Silicon Valley startups. It's true, but it's not, because this is the way it's going to work. This is how every industry works. We're just seeing it more clearly in the defense and uh, space, in the military-industrial complex space right now than maybe we have in the past. All of the innovations, all of the new things, good, bad, indifferent, that are created that end up, let's say... Uh, under the banner of Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or Merck or what have you. They all come about that way. They, they form these giant corporations, and you know, due to the Cantillon effect, they have access to billions upon billions upon billions of dollars at, at liter for literally free. It's a loan, but it's free. And so then what they do is they just suck up all the innovative companies into their fold. They let them go through all the bullshit. They let them take all the risk, etc. They often even backdoor fund them through angel investors, VCs, whatever, that they're actually being funded by the giant corporations who then simply cherry pick the ones that they think are worthy. They buy up everything, including the intellectual patents behind them, and then they end up as Raytheon or what have you. So that's what's going to happen here. Uh, again, now the spread shot, like shotgun approach that Dan's talking about is real, but it won't actually do anything until it goes inside of one of these larger entities that gets swallowed up by the bigger fish. Because selling to the government requires uh, checking a lot of boxes, crossing a lot of T's, dotting a lot of I's. Raytheon can sell anything it wants to the government and get away with it. Joe Spooty's new um, you know, artificial intelligence-driven drone, it's not as easy. You're talking to somebody that used to sell equipment to the government. And the only real way to get a lot of the equipment I had into their hands, when they were the ones that did the testing on it, that certified it as being what they wanted, I still had to go through resellers who actually could get it into government circles. And this was very small potatoes compared to giant defense contracts. Anyway, just saying. Now, the other thing, this is what I was thinking of when Chris was talking about all these billions that we sent to Ukraine. It just lined up with a thought I had today. Whenever we spend a lot of money on anything, 
And whether it's our money that the government stole or somebody spending their own money, like, oh, I don't know, a, a tech billionaire buying a social media company. The social media, or the, so, the social justice warrior wokeism idiots always come out and go, we got to solve world hunger with that money. Everybody, like, you know, Elon buys uh, a Tesla for, what, $45, $50 billion. They could have given everybody in the United States a million dollars. No, you can't do math. Right, but you hear this this autistic level shrieking from these people. Have you noticed no one has been like, hey, hey, wait a minute. All in, the West has given Ukraine $200 billion. We got absolutely jack squat, except a half a million Ukrainians killed, maimed, and destroyed over it. We've completely gutted an entire generation, multiple generations in Ukraine now. Uh, we've created a refugee crisis into Poland and many other places. We've absolutely destroyed this place. We got nothing for it. Hey, what could we have done with $200 billion? Not one person's asked that question. Why? Because they never actually mean it when they ask that question. They, none of these people mean anything that they say. And I'm talking about not just politicians. I'm talking about these idiots in the streets right now that are marching free Palestine. They don't know where Palestine is. They don't know what Palestine They don't know fucking anything. They don't know anything. They want what they want. And anything that looks like it might get them what they want or get them the kind of attention that they want, they will do. Anything that gives these assholes excuses to fuck shit up to block traffic, to burn buildings, to smash shit. It doesn't matter if it's George Floyd or Palestine, as divorced as those two things are. By the way, has anybody that is on the, the like free Palestine kick, because they're like, well, they should have the right to self-determination. Has anybody pointed out the mind-numbingly moronic irony that they are opposed to the people of Donbass who are ethnically Russian having a right of self-determination? Has anybody pointed that out? I'm just saying, is there any consistency anywhere in anything that's going on in the geopolitical space, the geoeconomic political space? And the answer is there is no continuity. There is no, there is no absolute, no equivalency. It is all bullshit. And it is because the average person is an idiot. Because they have been made an idiot by a system that is designed to make them idiots. In the words of Stanford Beer, the purpose of the system is what it does. Is what it does. Keep that in mind. Is anybody competes for your attention or tells you where to look or what to think or how to feel? Because one place you'll never get that from, I will give you very strong opinions. I will never tell you what to think. I will simply ask you to think, and that is why some people hate me. Because asking people to think leads to the truth. And the one thing that people hate more than anything else in 2024 is truth. Because truth is inconvenient. Truth is inconvenient. And instead of giving it to you, I often require you to think about it. And when you come to it yourself, then you get really, really pissed off. And we're going to keep doing it. I promise. My New Year's resolution is to continue to be the same asshole I've always been. Moving on. Let's now hear about off-road prep for hunting. But again, this could be off-road prep for anything with Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop, where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another expert counsel question, so let's dive right in. This one comes from Zach, and he said, Hey Jack, you recently put out feelers for the expert counsel. Here it is. I will be hunting for muley deer 
in Colorado this November and would like some tips. We'll be staying in an unfinished cabin that is dried in with water and electricity, but the heat isn't functional yet. We'll be hunting near San Isabel National Forest. Perhaps Doc Bones could have some outdoor winter medical tips. Dixie Mills will probably have some hiking backpacking tips. Or even Toolman Tim could suggest some gear. We'll be driving in from Georgia, so there's some cross-country driving content to throw in the mix. I know this isn't a typical question you get for expert council members, but I figured I would give it give them a starting point for some content. Thanks, Zach. I really like this question. And so, of course, since I do lots of cross-country driving and uh, we do our fair bit of off-road driving up here in Alberta, if you want to call it that, I'm going to take that angle of this question and dive into it. So, a lot of questions to ask, but the first thing is, are you traveling all together in one vehicle or are you going to convoy in a couple of vehicles? When you get there, are you going to be hiking, driving into the woods? Because Traditionally, and now that I know this is Colorado compared to Alberta, but up here, we tend to just take our vehicles and drive off-road once you have permission to go into fields, and you just go. And then you get stuck, and then your buddy pulls you out and all of that. But first thing I would say, traveling across cross-country, a good GPS system is a lifesaver. Get yourself one on your phone, get a second old phone, load maps.me, maps.me, and on there, you're going to preload all of your maps for where you're going. It's going to be a lifesaver. It's happened to me where I've lost my data on the road and then I was in a mess. But have it, have a backup. If you want, have a paper atlas, but at least the first two for sure. Have yourself a toe strap and some clevises. It will save your butt, especially driving in winter if you're coming from Georgia. Yeah, definitely. You don't know what's going to happen and it's always good, especially if you got two vehicles. Uh, something else you might not think of coming across the country, take a couple of blankets before you leave and cover your back seat. Now you can sit on them. They make the seats a little more comfortable. A bit of a pain to get the seat belts out through, but if you get in a ditch or you get stuck somewhere, you're going to be thankful for having those blankets. If your vehicle has a winch on it, be thankful. I'm not going to tell you to go install one, but this is for more other people. If you have a winch, my goodness, doesn't that save your butt sometimes? Uh, the temps are going to be nasty cold, more than likely. It's already been down to, now this is a little further north, of course, but we've been, what, 18, minus 18 Celsius here already in some snow. You could get a ton of snow, or you might not have anything at all. I would not travel in that area without winter tires. That's just me. I know you're coming from Georgia, and you probably can't even find winter tires in the stores there. Just something to think about. Uh, depending on how you're going to heat the cabin, uh, a Mr. Buddy heater is awesome. I've done lots of testing with those, and I love them. There's some videos online that show them being used in completely enclosed spaces. Firefighters going in afterwards with PPE and scuba gear on testing it, and it was perfectly safe. I love them. I think um, their dangers have been uh, overblown, and they work really, really well, especially in a drafty old cabin like that. So get yourself something to heat. Um, now, a good rangefinder, depending, I, I know I'm dipping into firearms territory here just a little bit, but you're going to have probably further distances to shoot down there than you do in Georgia. Overall, I may be a little bit off on that, but definitely have yourself a good rangefinder because you're going to get some longer shots for sure. A foldable shovel. Oh my goodness. There's Costco sells them. Uh, Harbor Freight sells them. There's foldable shovels all over the place. But again, you will thank yourself for having one because if you get stuck, a lot of times it's just, shoot, I shouldn't have went that far. And you're just a little bit on some ice or some snow. So if you can get that packed snow dug out from underneath, 
It's a great start. Some traction gravel. Don't go buy that traction sand. That stuff is junk. Get yourself some good, you know, quarter inch aggregate or half inch aggregate that you can throw under your tires in case you get stuck. And I'm going to tell you this once, twice, three times. Winter clothes, winter clothes, winter clothes, and boots. Yes, it's great to be in a vehicle when it's nice and warm. I mean, obviously take some of those layers off. But, you know, being from out of state and maybe not used to the driving conditions and not acclimatized to the weather, which is happening to me since I just came back from Tennessee, make sure you have lots of insulation. Because if you do get stuck and nobody's around and you need to walk, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is stuff that everybody needs to hear. So that's really the important stuff. If you want more suggestions, I could give, go on for hours with a list of gear to put in your, your vehicle for bugging out, for cross-country travel, or for just off-roading. But we'll leave it at that for now. Hopefully that gets you started and set up. If you want to follow up with me, uh, therealtimcook at gmail.com, or send it along to Jack. Keep your questions coming, guys. I love these questions, things for cross-country driving. I've really been having a lot of fun kind of decking out my vehicle for some, uh, you know, different eventualities and things like that. You want to get questions answered on entrepreneurship, starting a handyman business, landscaping, content creation, poverty mindset, anything and everything. Send them along to Jack and I'll keep answering them for you. And if you want a way to support me and you kind of like cool patches, if you're looking for a patch of the month club, you'll get a two by three Velcro patch every single month. Typically hilarious, rather politically incorrect, and it's a way for me to offer value for value exchange to my listeners. Ten bucks a month, hundred dollars a year. Go to patchofthemonth.co, sign up, and you'll get your first patch this month. So with that, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Good stuff from Tim, and maybe we should do a segment just on road trips in general that don't necessarily end in an off-road trip. There's a lot of you guys do a lot of road tripping, and it is one of the places people tend to be the least prepared when they should probably be the most prepared. Just a thought. Uh, maybe we'll even do a full Just Jack episode on that subject coming soon. Uh, next up, I have a question that I thought was kind of weird, and I'm going to let Nicole explain all of it. It's about canning, but pressure canning meat and using vinegar, and probably not in the way that you might think. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Hollow Roast Coffee with a question from Zach. Zach says, can you use vinegar instead of water for pressure canning? Details. My cousin said he has canned deer meat and it was delicious when it was canned. They used vinegar instead of water in the pressure counter canner outside of the jars. I questioned him, but he was adamant of the process. I did some research online and could find information about soaking the meat in vinegar prior to canning to help break down connective tissue and tenderize the meat, but I couldn't find anything about using vinegar outside the jars. The only thing I can think of is different boiling temperatures possibly, but that's where the pressure comes in. I'm thinking there's a misunderstanding here. When I first got this question, I kind of giggled a little bit, I will admit, because I was like, come on, man, like the liquid you use outside the jar, if you're canning properly, should have absolutely zero impact on what's inside the jar. Because if your lid is on properly, then and, and you're using a glass jar, then those flavors should not be coming through the glass. But then I was like, OK, let me think about this logically. And I looked up the boiling point of water, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. I looked up the boiling point of 
4% vinegar and it's around 213 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was like, okay, fair. If you pressure can with vinegar, it would follow that at the same pressure that we're canning up, it is going to be a few degrees maybe hotter when you're in the canner than it is with water. But then I thought about like, what is 4% vinegar, right? <laughs> and 4% vinegar means that you have the acetic acid at 4% and the rest is what? Water. So then in theory, what's going to be going on when you heat that mixture is the water is going to boil at around 212 degrees and it's going to concentrate the acetic acid. So when you're done pressure cooking, you're going to have a more concentrated vinegar basically in your pressure canner than you did before. Now, to your question of flavor, if it does in fact pressure can at a slightly higher temperature, do I think that has a dramatic impact on the flavor of the meat? No, but I can tell you this pressure canned meat of any kind has a tendency to have, you know, the chicken tastes more chickeny than the chicken. Like it's a beautiful flavor. It's a great way to store meats, especially tough cuts of meat, because when you pressure can your meat, it softens up those tough, tough fibers in there and yields a great flavor. So I actually make chicken stew from home canned chicken because it's more flavorful than if I do it from a fresh chicken in my crock pot or something. So my theory is it's just because it was pressure canned. Now, if you really want to test it, my advice is do some in vinegar, do some in water, make sure it's from the same animal and similar cuts, do a taste test, do a blind taste test and see what you think. I think you'll find they taste remarkably the same. Anyway, I hope this answers your question. Guys, if you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift for somebody who does not need more clutter in their life, I've got you covered, especially if they love coffee. We've got some Christmas offerings over at hollerroast.com. We've got Jack's Bourbon cooled in, and we are spirit cooling other coffees upon request. Also, we do gift wrap coffee mailed straight to people with a handwritten note of your choosing in there with them. Check it all out at hollerroast.com. Make it a great week. So it, it may have something else completely different going on. There may be something that the person who made it versus who ate it put it in the jar. And maybe they said I that was their secret. And maybe they have a secret they don't want to give away as to the recipe. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I find the entire premise laughable. If you understand the process, as Nicole just explained it, it's impossible for that to matter. You should, in theory, be able to pressure can with piss outside the jar. I don't recommend this, but you should be able to. And the flavor should be the same of what's inside the jar, because the twain shall not meet, the stream shall not be crossed, etc. I also wonder, though, is there a miscommunication here? Is there a small amount of vinegar being placed inside these jars that's adding a little tiny bit of the pickling quality to the meat? And is there a miscommunication? I'm not sure, but I think that it doesn't matter what you put on the outside of the jar, at least at the ratios that we're talking about here. Next up, let's talk about barter with old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. 
Oh, and also co-author of the brand new heartwarming Christmas story, Snowby, the First Snowman, published by Skyhorse Publishing. That's our first children's bedtime storybook. How about that? Well, anyhow, today I would like to talk about bartering in survival settings. Every so often, people ask me about the importance of things like precious metals for barter purposes in a collapse. Now, there's no reason not to have some silver or gold if you can afford it, but there's something you should know if you're counting on it in a post-apocalyptic economy. Precious metals would be useful as barter only in the early stages of a long-term disaster or after some amount of restabilization later on. Other items like food and medical supplies have more general trading power. In the early days after civilization has been taken over the brink, people haven't yet realized that money may be worthless in terms of long-term survival. In these circumstances, your paper money may actually have some value, but you can imagine more and more is going to be needed to buy tangible assets. This happened in post-World War I Germany, where you needed a wheelbarrow of paper money to buy a loaf of bread. It's important to know that currency is only paper, as evidenced by the government's apparent ease of printing it whenever they desire. Survivalists will realize this before long. Of course, you could, I suppose, use a nice wad of it to get a fire started or as bathroom tissue. But then, for a while, silver and gold will replace paper money. The amount of time you'll be able to use your coinage will vary with the speed of the collapse. But soon enough, even gold and silver will just be pretty hunks of metal. Maybe useful, again, once society has restabilized somewhat. Food, defensive items, and medical supplies are eventually going to become the most valuable surplus items that you can have for successful trading. If you live in a very dry climate, add water to that list. Let's talk about food as barter. Face it, once the supermarket shelves are empty, food's going to be on everybody's mind. Those who have experienced hunger is going to tell you how difficult it is to think of pretty much anything else. The answer is to grow your own food, right? Few, however, have the seeds or the knowledge of how to grow their own vegetables, let's say. Even fewer have success producing enough for their families, not to mention a mutual assistance group. you got to know that gardening has a learning curve that's subject to the whims of the weather, such as the amount of rainfall, storms, extremes in temperature, soil conditions, pests, even human vandals are a factor. Despite the challenges, you need to learn how to be successful growing food. If you can do that, you have some real bartering power. Although Nurse Amy and I happen to be fortunate to live near sources of fresh water, availability isn't the only issue. Untreated water could be a death sentence from disease causing organisms. Materials to purify it, even just sodium hypochlorite, that's household bleach, could be highly useful for bartering with knowledgeable survivors. Unfortunately, that loses potency in 6-12 to 12 months, the liquid bleach. What you would prefer to have is a supply of calcium hypochlorite crystals used in pool additives like pool shock. That'll last longer and it's easier to portion out. Properly stored, calcium hypochlorite has a shelf life of over five years. Now here's how to disinfect water with calcium hypochlorite. You add one heaping teaspoon of the chemical to two gallons of water and stir. That makes, not something you can drink, it makes a bleach solution. Then you add one pint of the bleach solution to, let's say, 12 and a half gallons of water or a half liter to every 50 liters of water to make it potable. Essentially, you're making drinkable water by adding one part of chlorine mixture to each hundred parts of water. Pouring the water from one container to another seems to decrease the chlorine taste that people notice. Don't forget you have to wait a good 30 minutes to allow it to work its magic. Let's talk about ammunition as barter. I know that J. Wesley Rawls thinks a lot about having ammunition as your main barter item. Now, items for defense are going to be very important indeed in survival settings. I totally admit that. 
If you're planning on accumulating ammo as barter, try to figure out what calibers are most popular in your area. In some most states, 9mm is the most popular handgun round, and for rifle rounds, it's usually the 223 5.56 NATO. Encounters in survival settings for bartering ammunition can be pretty risky, however, as somebody can simply complete the transaction by loading their firearm with your items and, well, you know the rest. This is always going to be a possibility. As a matter of fact, it's naive to think that you wouldn't be a target for the desperate or unscrupulous. Therefore, any barter meeting should be undertaken only with plenty of backup. If the product to be traded is ammunition, it should be packaged so solidly that it can't be accessed until you're far away. Now, how about medical supplies as barter? Food and ammunition seem natural barter items, so why would medical supplies have trade value? The reason is pretty simple. You can easily make a wound with a weapon, but few are going to have the items necessary to heal a wound. Having bandages, antibiotics, blood clotting agents, other medical materials are unique and irreplaceable goods in a dangerous world without hospitals and emergency rooms. These items, and the knowledge to use them, will become important materials and services both in the short and the long term. You can never have too many medical supplies in your survival storage. You'd be surprised how many dressings one major bleed will actually consume. Now don't forget that you won't be dealing with wound care just until you get the patient to the hospital. There is no hospital. You're going to be in charge from beginning to end in a true survival scenario. So for any lengthy event, that means you'll use up a lot of medical supplies just changing wound dressings. So bandaging materials, antiseptics, other wound care items, these are going to be highly valuable. Antibiotics will be as well. I've written for over a decade on the importance of antibiotics to avoid unnecessary deaths in survival settings. Veterinary antibiotic equivalents are not as easily found these days, but are still available online at places like fishmoxfishflex.com and others. Some people note that many antibiotics are now by prescription only from a vet, but that applies, and this is important for you to know, that applies mostly to food-producing livestock, not your pet guppy. You can get fish antibiotics still at these places online. You can also get human antibiotics through a number of services that are popping up here and there but you probably can't get them in mass quantities like you could some fish antibiotics. But it's not just medical items. Let's take the value of your medical knowledge as a trade item. Not everybody knows how to stop bleeding or splint an injury, perform long-term wound care, or treat infection. If you're the medic, your services have a value. What do you think that value would be in circumstances where a family has a child who's sick or injured? I mean, this is a compelling argument for taking the time and effort needed to learn medical skills. That doesn't mean that you should expect something in return every time you help someone in medical need. The value of goodwill in a survival community should not be underestimated. Grateful parents, if they're able, will want to reward you in some way for saving a child's life. In this way, volunteering your services may increase the chances for your own family's survival. Your skills may be deemed so valuable that you may become an important asset to a community, one whose members will expend resources to protect. If you spend enough time off the grid, it stands to reason that all the commercial supplies are going to run out. So a knowledge of herbalism will come in pretty handy here. An understanding of what plants in your area may have medicinal value will help cement your long-term value to the group. So, food, water, shelter, the most important things to have if things go south. Medical supplies, the knowledge of how to use them, a pretty strong second, maybe more than ammo, but I'm biased. Keep this in mind as you put together your stockpile. I'll bet you have your own ideas on what would be useful barter items in a post-apocalyptic world. I've already received recommendations by readers and listeners to include booze, cigarettes, lighters, and other items like that. If you have some others you'd like to share with me, let me know your thoughts. 
This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, check out more than 1,500 free articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus an entire line of quality medical kits designed by yours truly at doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So, all the advice on the supplies and food and all I completely agree with. On the, the silver and gold issue and barter and monetary use and stuff, I mostly agree. I don't completely agree, and here's why. Historically, breakdowns are always different, and you don't know what you're going to get. And in most societies, there has always been people that have more than other people, and those people always have something that you want, and you do not always have what they want. And this is the entire genesis of a monetary-based system in the first place. And even in some of the darkest days of, let's say, the monetary collapse in Argentina, the first time around anyway, um, people were still taking gold and silver as currency uh, in return for things like food and other items, comfort items, etc. Fernando Aguirre, who is a good friend of the show, and I've had him on several times, been on his several times, said he, I, I sat down and had a meal with him one time, and he said he literally watched people do things like say, well, I want this, and the guy's like, yeah, I don't want pesos, and the other dude pulls out a chain, count off a number of links, take a knife, and you know, hit it with the back of your hand and break a, a link and hand the guy a certain number of links of gold. So I think that we need to understand that Bones is making a very salient point in that there will be people who may have food that would not take gold because the food is more valuable than gold in the situation they're in. That type of a breakdown is the stuff of like TV miniseries and stuff like that, and it is the least probable type of societal breakdown that you will ever be part of. And these are also notoriously short-term because power abhors a vacuum. And power apparatuses immediately seize opportunity in these breakdowns. They end up calling them revolutions and insurrections or whatever. They usually don't work out very well. And the government tends to not fix things, but they do tend to stabilize things. So I would not want to enter such a breakdown deficient in food or medical supplies or silver or gold or any other thing of value. I think we need a balanced, rounded approach at all times. And I think there is definitely the scenario that he described, that you, you enter into this problem, silver and gold take over from cash as being the currency of choice, and then more of a barter society develops, and then you have a coming back on the other side as you reestablish some form of order. Again, though, if that's what you're prepping for, you're not prepping for the 99% of shit that's more likely to happen. I'm just saying. Moving on, let's talk about keeping young trees alive when transplanting seedlings. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer for Rich on planting seedling trees. Um, the question is... Uh, Tree seedlings for Nick. What is the best practices for planting seedlings that are under 12 inches? I'm cold stratifying a number of varieties of trees this winter and also have a source for affordable seedlings. What is the best way to increase survival rates for transplanting small seedlings? Should I do an intermediate step into gallon-sized pots or go direct into their final location? My last experiment failed and the seedlings were outcompeted by other vegetation. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, 
the the weeds or grass jumping up and choking them out is probably one of the most common mistakes that people will make with them. So if you're transplanting small seedling trees, you're going to have to fulfill the function of the forest ecosystem, say that ten times fast, for those trees unless you're planting them in a forest. The thing is, a forest is designed to grow trees. There's dappled light, there's deep mulch and leaf litter, and normally the forest is going to have relatively moist, cool soils that are fungally dominant with little to no herbaceous, weedy, or grassy species under the canopy. And that kind of environment is exactly what most tree seedlings need for their first several years of life. So, to give them the best start when planting them in a place that's not a forest, you need to be the forest for them. You need to provide that forest environment for them if you're putting them somewhere that there's not already a forest in place. That means you must remove the weed and grass pressure through mulch of some kind. You need to keep that soil moist and cool, and you might even need to provide that ceiling tree with some protection from harsh sunlight and heat, um, and, and wind even, too. So the best way to increase survival rates transplanting small seedlings is to lay down a thick layer of mulch as soon as you can. This winter would be great. Think about what nature does. Every fall, nature drops a whole bunch of mulch on the ground, and it sits there all winter, breaking down slightly before spring. So um, get mulched down as soon as you can. You can and should install drip irrigation or at least have the option to run a sprinkler out to where they are. And then plant into the mulch this spring or late winter. If you plant dormant trees in late winter, early spring, then you can plant in freezing weather with no issues because the trees are dormant. They're ready for freezing weather. So even if you get trees in the mail and it's freezing weather, as long as you can get them in the ground, it doesn't matter. Just put them in the ground. They'll be fine. So uh, if you can't use a natural mulch like wood chips, hay, or straw, then you can use something like landscape fabric, a 20-year weed barrier fabric. Um, but I much prefer to use wood chips if at all possible. But, I mean, I'm using the 20-year weed barrier fabric in my uh, fodder forest area. So, yeah, I use this stuff. It works. Uh, the reason why I'm using it is because I can put out a whole bunch of linear footage of it really fast and deal with the weed problem. Um, so the other option, like you mentioned, uh, is to plant them in pots and keep them in a nursery area for a year while they get more established. The drawback to this is if you're talking about hundreds of trees, that's going to be a significant investment into potting mix and pots and irrigation and all that stuff. If it's just a few dozen trees, no big deal. It just all depends on the scope and scale of your needs. I've got customers who get their trees from me and they put them in pots for a year or two all the time. Every year someone is doing that. And they've all had great success doing that um, because it gives them a year to grow up to a more significant transplant size. I mean, you water and fertilize them well and they're in a one to three gallon pot, I mean, they'll get three, four feet tall. So if the issue is the grass and weeds were getting too tall to choke them out, um, then doing that might be the ticket. Um, also, you know, just keeping them close to the house and babying them for a year can oftentimes give you a lot better 
uh, survival rates. The main thing is you've got to protect them from competition and ensure they have enough moisture and fertility on a consistent basis because their root systems are tiny and they simply just can't reach deeper soil levels to find water. Um, so, yeah, uh, speaking of affordable bare root trees, it's that time of year again. Orders are already rolling in over at rareplantstore.com. So if you don't want to miss out, you better get your orders in before we sell out. I've got three package deals this year. Fodder trees, the white mulberry, hybrid willow, and I traded out because I've been looking and looking and looking for a wholesale option on lace bark elm. I finally found some. So... This year, the fodder trees are going to be white mulberry, hybrid willow, and lace bark elm. The deer garden package is five Schumard oak and five American persimmon. That is a killer deal. And then the fuel wood guild, which is what I'm most excited about this year, is the hybrid poplar, American hazelnut, and red maple. Now, this fuel wood guild is triple purpose, a really cool function stack. All three of those trays make good fodder leaves for ruminants they have beautiful fall color and of course they make great firewood i'm real excited about that pack i'm actually planting a bunch of them on our land here so for those of you who have already bought fodder trees in the past or you're buying some from me this year and you want a more well-rounded fodder assortment you don't want to just have three trees that you're feeding your livestock you want to have six then the Fuelwood Pack makes a fantastic addition to the Classic Fodder Pack while being focused on producing good Fuelwood. Um, the Deer Garden Pack, it's a really great deal. If you want to go to the big box stores and, and you were to buy that many of each of those trees potted at a standard size, you'd pay over 450 bucks easy. Now, granted, these trees are smaller, but you're getting smaller trees for a fraction of the price and on top of that, you've got no problem with circling and girdling roots. That is a major problem when you buy those big potted trees and you stick them in your yard. Five, ten years later, the tree dies and you don't know what the problem is because it's got circling and girdling roots. But when you plant these bare root trees, you don't have those problems. Um, then the last little pack that I have is probably going to be sold out before this airs, but I still have a handful of unrooted willow cutting packs up on the site so get them while they're hot to see pictures and product descriptions check it out over at rareplantstore.com all right i hope those tips and guidelines on caring for seedling trees uh is useful to you guys and i wish you all the best of luck with your next set of trees i'm nick ferguson with homegrown liberty and rare plant store do good things one of the things we can do, just as a little add-on here, to reduce competition with young seedling trees is to provide competition that's easy for us to control. For instance, if when we put out our trees, if we were to surround it with light cover crop mix that's easy to kill when we're ready to do so, we would then grow our mulch for a fraction of pennies per tree. That's just another thing to consider. So, you know, this time of year, if you were going to go out and plant trees in winter so that they're in the ground to emerge in spring, then surrounding them with something uh, like a cereal uh, mix, uh, a cereal grain mix or something like that, and then, or winter pea as well, maybe a winter pea and barley would be like a good mix to use right now. And just a small area around where the disturbance is that tree. Well, that cereal grain crop 
might be a little bit late in a lot of the country, but a lot of places would take off. And then simply when that tree begins to bud out, when it warms up enough and it starts to grow, you could simply go and crimp kill with something like a shovel even, because you're talking about a small kind of area around there, and then that's going to act as a mulch. It's going to act as a living mulch. It's going to increase the soil biology, and it won't be long before any tree is going to easily outcompete anything like an annual grain. So then you, you might even then go back and surround these trees with something like uh, a buckwheat uh, cover crop, and then before it actually starts to set seed, because it can get kind of weedy in some climates, if it, you allow it to self-reseed, again, crimp kill it. And so that's very easy, very quick. I mean, buckwheat, you can kill that, the type of amount we're talking about here, by stepping on it. I mean, literally just walk out and just step it down, and, and that'll crimp the stalks, and it'll die, and it'll rot back, and it'll leave a mulch behind. So that's another way you could come at it. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying it's another thing you could consider doing, or maybe even trying on some versus others and seeing how it works out. Next up. John Pugliano on, well, you have an opportunity to become a 1099 contractor. How do you approach pricing there? I think this is a very good segment from John. It'll help a lot of people. And a little bit of a look at the market going forward into 2020, 2024. Well, Happy New Year, TSP. I've got a question from Andrew about the pros and cons of being an employee versus an independent contractor. I'm going to touch on that, and then if I have time, I'll do a brief market update as we enter into the new year. Okay, as far as Andrew's question, he's been offered a 1099 contracting arrangement. This would be for part-time work, maybe 20 to 30 hours a week, and the work involves technical writing skills. He doesn't want to sell himself short, and he wants some idea of how he should be pricing himself as an independent contractor. Now, a couple of other things he mentions here. Uh, he does receive health insurance from his wife, and he also has resources that he can use to set up an LLC and, and such. Okay, a couple things. As far as the LLC... That's really not even necessary. You're going to be paid on a 1099, and that can be linked either directly to your Social Security number, or if you do want to set something up, even if it's just a doing business as Andrew, you can simply get a federal ID tax number for free. It's online. It's very simple to do through the IRS. So unless you really have a compelling reason, you know, from a legal perspective about setting up an LLC, at this point, I wouldn't worry about it. As far as receiving health care from your wife, that's good to know in terms of your own personal expenses, but it really doesn't impact you in terms of what you want to be billing for because you do want to build in things like health care and other benefits that a normal competitive salary would be charging that employer. So keep in mind, salaries and income are very much like real estate. Everything is local. So do some research. Get a feel on what someone with that technical expertise would be being paid as an employee on an hourly wage. And then with that, you want to add in those fringe benefits or those extra benefits that are not directly reflected in the salary. So that would include things like vacation time, health care, 401k matching. I mean, any type of these benefits would be a normal cost to an employer. And additionally, something you might not have thought of, but payroll taxes. As a 1099 employee, you're going to be responsible for 100% of your Social Security and Medicare taxes and things like that. Normally, that's picked up 50% by the employer. So you want to factor that into the equation as well. And then once you come up with that number, at that point, you can decide whether or not it's realistic enough that the prospective employer can afford to pay it. 
And, you know, things can be negotiated as to whether or not you really want to work for whatever that number is or not. Here's the bigger thing I'd really encourage you to think about. And that's not to think like an employee, but think like a business owner. Employees think in terms of hourly compensation or salaries or fixed incomes like that. Business owners think in terms of profit. So in addition to trying to come up with a number that you're willing to work for, I would really be thinking about the work conditions that you're going to be required to meet. And specifically, I would be negotiating for 100% or close to 100% of remote work. The reason that's so important is that if you're really good at your job and you're productive, then even though you're being employed for a 20 or 30 hour work week, you may be able to accomplish that task in 10 hours. If you're that productive, and especially if you're working remote, then it's very likely that you could come up with a situation like that. And then the advantage to that is that all that extra time you'd have either for your own recreational purposes or better yet, you could earn a higher income by finding more than one employer to work for. So those are some thoughts I'd have as you negotiate for this new position. And then I probably don't have to say this, but I will anyways. Consider the fact that if you are a highly productive employee and you can accomplish that task in 10 hours, that's not something you directly share with your boss. If he gives you a deadline by the end of the week and you finish it Monday morning, don't turn that assignment in until late Friday afternoon. He doesn't need to know how productive you are unless he's directly willing to compensate you for that production. Okay, Andrew? Hey, good luck. Well, hey, just a real brief comment on the markets. You're probably seeing all over the media right now about how the market closed up at the end of the year. You know, the S&P was up some 20%, yada, yada, yada. Take a step back here. Yeah, the S&P closed up some 20% at the end of the year, but eight weeks before that, it was down something like 16%. Just because it's near record highs now doesn't mean it will be there eight weeks from now. And that volatility has really been baked into the markets over the last two years. In fact, if you step back and you look at a two-year chart of almost all the major indices, you'll see that the markets are not up dramatically. In fact, most markets are not up at all. They're flat. There are still a number of markets that are down considerably from the highs that they've made over the last two years. Leading economic indicators have been down for 20 consecutive months. That rarely happens, and every time in the past when it's done, we've been in a confirmed recession. Now, I'm not predicting gloom and doom here. I actually do think that 2024 is going to present better risk-adjusted investment opportunities in the stock market than the past year did, mostly for the reason that for the first time in about 22 months, the Federal Reserve is not actively trying to create a recession. So if nothing else, that at least puts somewhat of a bottom into how low the market can go. And the other factor to consider in 2024 is that we're heading into a re-election, and you know the establishment is going to do everything they can to get their guy re-elected. And so when you hear in the media about how good the economy is or how good the stock market's doing, just step back and ask yourself this question. If Donald Trump were still president, would the media be pumping up the economy and telling you how good things are? I don't think so. Well, hey, until next time, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. 
Yeah, all in on the remote work for a contract. And I would tell you that with very few exceptions, if you were told you can't work remote, you're not a contractor. If I can tell you you have to be here in this desk, in this seat, at the hours that I say... You are not a contractor, and I cannot legally treat you as one as an employer. What I can say is the hours you build me for, this is where I need the work done. That you can do, but but if, if it's like you have to show up by 9 o'clock, and I'll, you're not a contractor. That's not how contractors work. And the reason you can say I want the work done here is the same reason I can say I'm hiring a contractor to model my kitchen. I need the work done in my kitchen. So you can have some oversight as the payee. Right, the payer uh, of a contractor, but you can't have the type of oversight that you have with an employee. Most employers should be open to this anyway when they're hiring someone to be a contractor. And I've always used this line when people pushed back on remote work back when I actually worked for others. If you don't trust me enough to do the work outside of this office, don't hire me. It usually ends the discussion immediately because... People that are not going to do the work never talk like that. It's the same reason when you get pulled over by a cop, and I go, oh, I have a right not to... Yeah, yeah, you're stupid. I always disclose the fact that I'm armed. And every cop I've ever done it with has immediately actually shifted into nice cop mode. Because bad guys with guns don't say, hey, I want you to know I am armed. What do you need me to do for you? That never happens when it's the bad guy. So the person that's going to fuck off at work never says, hey, if you don't trust me to work for you, don't hire me. So that's that's a little bit of advice on, 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 on that one. Uh, definitely price everything in. And my final piece of advice in negotiating any wage, employee, contract, bid, I don't care. If you're completely comfortable with the price, raise the price, at least some. You need to ask for enough that you feel a little bit uncomfortable because you never get a second chance to make that first number. John's right. Everything is negotiable from there. On the next thing, kind of leads into mine with false equivalencies we're going to talk about here in a second. Yeah, if Donald Trump was president, you'd be hearing exactly the opposite from the media, about, including Fox News, by the way, about how bad the economy is. Because the economy is dog shit. And what's happening right now, and no one seems to be paying attention to this, I posted on social media yesterday a graph showing this, um, quitting is up while jobs hiring is down. Right? So people are quitting more in the last couple of years, and yet less people are being hired. This is... The, the strong jobs market is one of the few indicators that you could look at and try to make a case that the economy is actually pretty good, even though the jobs didn't pay enough. At least you could get one. Well, even that is beginning to fall. This whole thing is beginning to unravel. And like I said, if we make it to Election Day without this becoming evident to how bad things are, it will be because the redneck repair of the economy, it's not even a repair, the redneck maintenance of the economy using a combination of bailing wire, zip ties, and duct tape worked long enough to get the potato salad reelected. I'm just saying. Anyway, let's, let's talk about some false equivalency here. And again, I'm not picking on the person that sent this. 
It's a good question, and it leads to a di- an interesting discussion. This comes in from Erroneous, he calls himself, and he says, Why do animals want us to eat them? Details. Okay, okay, this topic is a bit inflammatory. See what I did there? Yeah. I don't know if everybody else does what I do. But if we say plants emit chemicals to discourage us from eating them and their seeds, why is this not true of animals? More a philosophical question. The hubs, or so this is a girl, uh, the hubs and I are planning on going ketogenic in January, so definitely we're already on board. Okay, great question from Erroneous. Sorry I called you a he and misgendered you. Didn't mean to. Uh, most women would not call themselves Erroneous. That's more of an online male handle, so I got that wrong. Anyway, so here's the question. Why do plants develop chemical defenses against being eaten in the first place? Instead of why do animals eat, why do animals want us to eat, eat them? Is it just a... I don't mean to be uh, aggressive, but I think you're asking a dumb question on purpose because you know it's a dumb question, but you know it's a dumb question that dumb vegans are going to ask if you point this out. But that's that's not really how we answer that question. We have to start out with, do plants use chemicals in defense to prevent themselves from being eaten? And the answer is yes. In fact, the vast majority, high 90 percentile, of plants in the world are not just poisonous, but incredibly poisonous. Remember, venom is something that has to be injected in you. Poison is something that can harm you either because it gets on your skin or you ingest it. So they're poisonous, not venomous. Yeah. Now, <laughs> why did they do that? Well, let's just take a different look at how other organisms defend themselves from being consumed. Let's look at something that everything eats. Everything big enough to eat it eats it anyway. Rabbit. Cats eat rabbits, dogs eat rabbits, people eat rabbits, foxes eat rabbits. You know, like coyotes eat rabbits. Every every predator that eats any other animal that's bigger than a rabbit, that lives where a rabbit lives, is like, I'll, I'll eat that. How does the rabbit defend itself from being eaten? Well, the number one way it defends itself is they're pretty quick and they run away. They also have the sense of smell and sight and hearing that is all very good. They also dig holes in the ground. We call them burrows. And they never are that far from one of those burrows that they can retreat to. And they also tend to build their burrows within things like brush piles that give them added concealment and some cover for you armed type individuals. You know, there's been concealment and cover. They get a little bit of both from that because the coyote is not shooting at them, right? So the soft cover actually works to a degree. That coyote has to get through there to get that rabbit. So they use all of their senses and all of their abilities to avoid being consumed, So rabbits have evolved to be excellent hearing, pretty damn good at sight, really good at speed, and good at creating escape routes for themselves and knowing where those escape routes are at all times. Why? Because they have four legs and they can move and they can hear and they have a brain and a prefrontal cortex. And they can map out, this is what I need to do to survive, and over... Thousands upon thousands upon thousands and honestly probably millions of years. The rabbits that we know today, the various rabbits and hare species, have evolved to avoid being consumed. Now let's compare that to a plant. I'm a plant growing in the middle of the edge of a forest. Let's say the edge of a forest, typical herbaceous plant. What do I do? See, the false equivalency is here. 
The plant can't run, it can't hear, can't see. And so the plant, if it's a yummy, delicious variety of plant, it gets eaten. And the particular plants of that species that are less palatable don't get eaten. So this plant, let's say it's a precursor, it's some form of a wild lettuce plant. So this plant, it, it has basically, plants have basically three things that they can do to prevent being eaten. Actually, four. They can emerge at a time when the thing that eats them is not really actively looking for them. That's really not a choice, but it can become an evolutionary principle. They can become non-palatable. So it's not necessarily poisonous, but they don't taste good, right? They can do a combination of non-palatable and toxic, or they can just be toxic so the things that eat them die or get sick and don't want to eat them anymore, right? They can do those things, right? And that's, you know, that's, there's not a lot of other things that they can do. About the only other option that they have is some sort of physical defense, i.e. thorns. Thorns, because if you look at something like a stinging nettle, right, then instead of thorns they develop these hairs, but it's really a toxin, it's really a poison that causes the irritation. So it's either they put thorns on, they produce a substance that, that makes them non-palatable or toxic. They don't have another option. So did the plant, when you say the plant doesn't want to be eaten, people anamorphize or plantamorphize everything, right? So they, they, they think that you're actually saying that the plant has made a conscious, no, it's made an evolutionary decision. It hasn't sat there and gone, I'm going to make toxins so that the squirrel doesn't eat me, right? It's like, hey, since all of the really delicious, yummy, undefended versions of me got eaten, and I'm the honey badger that reproduces over time, the toxins in plants become more effective. Because if the plant is eaten to such a point, then it will evolve. And if we look at something, like I said, wild lettuce, you'll find that it has this sticky, gummy, latex-like, gross-tasting sap to it in the stems. It literally is a form of opium, or very similar to opium. You can actually make an opium substitute from wild lettuce. Now... You, that tells you that the substance itself can be toxic. And it also produces these very thorny, nasty leaves. Why? Because it's very palatable to a lot of animals. So the ones that were least able to be eaten reproduced. So there is no comparison here. There's no equivalency at all. The equivalency is false. Because the turn of phrase was, well, since the plant doesn't want to be eaten, it produces toxins... And the person took it literally versus through evolutionary biology, they were able to link and create a false equivalency. And this is prevalent everywhere. Like I said, it's prevalent in vaccines. What do people say? Well, I trust vaccines. But it's not a vaccine. When we're talking about the most current mRNA genetic therapy that's being used to supposedly prevent a disease that it doesn't prevent, it's not a vaccine. Not in the way that the word is meant and the, what the word has meant for decades. So people became comfortable with the concept of vaccines being safe. Now, there's a big debate about whether those vaccines are safe. But that's a different debate. To say that a rapidly developed 
mRNA technology that is by its very nature a genetic therapy that is acknowledged not to actually prevent the, the, the contraction or transmission of the disease is equivalent to vaccines that did, whether you believe it or not, wipe out the underlying illness that they were in time, in, intended to wipe out. If you go look at, let's look at tetanus, and not DPT, just tetanus alone. If you go look at the deaths from tetanus from 150 years ago, especially in warfare, versus today, you can't say that it doesn't work. And if you look at the number of bad reactions to people receiving the tetanus vaccine, you can say that a person might make, have, absolutely should have the freedom of choice to say, I don't care about the risk. I, I prefer the risk of tetanus to the risk of the tetanus vaccine. You may agree or disagree with that person, but they should have the right to make that determination. Nobody gives you tetanus, so you can't even make that argument, even though I think that's a weak argument. If the vaccine actually works, you go get it, and we don't. You can shut up, right? But it's that is one form of a vaccine. It's against a bacteria. It's been proven effective, and a track record of uh, of being effective. And on top of it, people that get tetanus shots don't turn around five weeks later and say, "I've tested positive for tetanus. I will be resting at home. My symptoms are mild. I am grateful for the protection the vaccine afforded me." See, that's a false equivalency. And it's done over and over and over and everything. Oh, and, and the, the biggest false equivalency that's right in everybody's face that nobody sees has a term that's used for all types of substances injected into you, given to you medicinally, and given to you as food. It's called GRS, Generally Recognized as Safe. So since we were able to put this thing through the gamut and get it approved as a chemical additive 40 years ago, anything remotely like it is still generally recognized as safe. Throw it in their food, put it in their medicine, put it in the air they breathe, put it in the water they drink. It's fine. It's GRS. False equivalency. There is one thing. That I can, and there's lots of things. But here's one thing I can guarantee you that we are never going to teach our students in middle school, high school, and university. Logical fallacies. We are never going to actually... Like, there should be... when If you're going to have school the way that we do, then a required course before one gets a high school diploma should be an entire course in logical fallacies. The fact that a person can graduate with a 4.0, the fact that a person can graduate with a 4.5 GPA just tells you GPAs don't mean shit anymore, by the way. But a 4.0 or higher GPA, but not identify logical fallacies right in front of their face, shows that our entire education system is a pile of reeking, stinking, steaming garbage. 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 The fact that you could take an educated person who considers themselves highly educated because they have initials after their name like BS, a great initial for that, Bachelor of Science, and they can't spot moving the goalposts, false equivalency, right? The fact that they can't spot these fallacies, red herring, that they don't even know what they are. If it wasn't for memes, most people wouldn't even know they exist. And then call themselves educated? And then defend the system that educated them? It tells you something. The purpose of the system is what the system 
does. And the education system, while I just said, is a reeking, stinking pile of garbage, and it is. It works exactly the way the people that designed it intended it to. To get you to be a good little drone that does what you're told and finds your little place in the ecosystem and doesn't worry about whether you're right or wrong, worries about whether your side gets what it wants. And it don't care, again, they don't care what side you pick. As long as you pick a side, the giant will keep marching left, right, left, right, left, right, left. And you'll go along, and you'll get along, and you have an evolutionary reason for it. If we go back 10,000 years to a little village somewhere, and that little village has all except certain traditions as being the truth, and you started walking around telling the truth, your best case scenario is to get banished. Your most likely scenario is to end up buried up to your neck and stoned to death, or burned, or stabbed, or clubbed. Because that was an evolutionary mechanism of survival. People work together. We are social far more than we are logical as a species. And that's why the number one thing you can do to enrage people is tell the truth. The other thing you can do that totally enrages people is ask a question that points to an uncomfortable truth that they don't are not ready for yet. Even if it doesn't prove their primary premise. I just did this on, on, on Twitter. I asked a question. It was a religious question. It was about, did Jesus ever talk about a thing? And the answer was no, he did not. Now, you can still make a very good case with the Christian religion against the thing. Of course you can. Some people, like one in a hundred, actually answered the question with zero. But, okay, I respect, I don't have to agree with your answer to respect it, that it's a thinking logical answer. But most people got very, very, very angry that I asked the question. Because it pointed to an uncomfortable truth. And the point I was making wasn't whether you were right or wrong. It's if you say, this is your way shower, he didn't care about this thing enough to talk about it. Maybe all the other things he talked about are more important if you want to follow that faith. But see, that upsets people. And that's within a religion. You might expect it within a religion, but it's all become a religion. Climate change is a religion. Socialism is a religion. Conservatism has become a religion. It, these words mean nothing anymore. You, you, there is the party. And the party is them. And they have a club, in the words of George Carlin, and you ain't in it. And they can claim that they're conservatives or liberals or socialists or libertarians or whatever they want to claim they are. If they're part of that system, they're part of the system whose purpose is what it does. And the one thing we know is what it does. Stop buying into logical fallacies and then realize once you do... Most of the people around you will not want to hear what you have to say. Say it anyway, and then move along. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be a Friday flashback, and we are back at it full bore. If you are coming to the uh, composting workshop, and you have not got an email from me yet that gave you, in addition to the post I did, my phone number and my address, you need to let me know, because as far as I know, I have taken care of everybody at this point with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival... Oh, wait, whoa, 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 item of the day! Almost forgot. It's a cool one, too. Remember, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping, beginning where? tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You see all the items I have reviewed. Today's item of the day just popped up in a pricing alert for me. 
the Anchor Soundcore waterproof Bluetooth speaker. How waterproof is it? Well, being the guy that tests things, I have taken this, listened to some good old music with a shower beer and a shower speaker, and I've put it in the shower, and I've had water go all over it. And as long as the little thing is closed up on it, it's worked just fine. I've never thrown it in the pool, but it says I could. I trust it to not get rained on and get ruined. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, it has also got great sound, and it's 25% off today. Normally $40, bucks. today they're $30. Bucks. But this is my favorite thing about these speakers, the Soundcore 2s. They offer pairing, meaning you can buy two of them. One pairs with your device, the other pairs with the other speaker, and now you have stereo. I have a great big garage slash shop that we do our workshops in and all. I have AV in there and everything. I have another steel building to the back of my property. It's more of my actual workshop where I actually build stuff and get sawdust on the floor and all of that, right? So I don't have AV in there, and I was going to put AV out there, and then I found these, and I'm like, screw it. I have two of these out there. I keep them set up on my, my timber cribs on both sides of the building so they're kind of elevated. And I've got surround sound that is awesome out there when I'm working. And I, when I'm out working in the garden, I just take them out of that building and put them up on my uprights in my gardens. And now I've got surround sound out in the garden. I take them over to the pool when we're sitting at the pool. It's awesome. And they're 30 bucks a piece when they're on sale. And if one gets broken or getting, gets dro- driven over by an Outback SUV which my wife did, it won't be that big of a deal. But in the case of the one that got tripped, my wife literally drove over one of these. It was my fault. Let me just put it, she did the driving, I did the leaving of the device on the back of the car, and it fell off and she drove over it. It still works. I ain't guaranteeing that. I'm just saying it does. So check these out. And Anchor has a bunch of stuff on sale today. There's a link in the bottom of the write-up today about that. And I'm just going to tell you, as I've said before, my favorite electronics value brand on the planet is Anchor because I've sold tens of thousands of their devices and nobody's mad at me for it. That says a lot. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. You never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way